Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the July 5th, 2021 edition of Digging Out. This program offers a means for getting us through the last four days, four weeks, four years, four decades, and four centuries. My guests today are Nancy Cohen and Mona Shaw of the Gender Equity Policy Institute with a very new report out, Failing the Climate Justice Test, an analysis of California's projected climate resilience funding and its effect on Californians by race, region, and gender. Quite the pile of debris we'll take up today. To introduce both of them briefly, Nancy Cohen is the president and founder of Gender Equity Policy Institute, a nonprofit research organization. She is an award-winning author, historian, and leading national expert on gender and U.S. politics. She's the author of four books, including Delirium, The Politics of Sex in America on Antifeminism and Political Polarization, Breakthrough, The Making of America's First Woman President, and The Reconstruction of American Liberalism, 1865 to 1914 on Inequality and Social Conflict in Post-Reconstruction America. Nancy's reporting and commentary has been published widely. Listeners may have seen her work in the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, USA Today, MSNBC, NPR, and elsewhere. My other guest is Mona Shaw. She is the Vice President of External Affairs at the Gender Equity Policy Institute. Mona is a policy and advocacy expert with an extensive background in healthcare, women's issues, and public health. Previously, she served as staff director to U.S. Senator Barbara Mikulski. She's also worked as a consultant to nonprofit organizations, philanthropies, and government agencies. Two tool belts, how fabulous on digging out. Nancy comes to us today from her home in Los Angeles and Mona from her home, just probably down the street from me in Irvine. Welcome to Digging Out, Nancy Cohen and Mona Shaw. Thank you, Claudia. We're so happy to be here. Thank you. That's first was Nancy and the second is Mona. We are taping this on July 1st. If breaking news takes place in the California legislature and nationally speaking. Well, so first, Nancy and Mona, a little background on Gender Equity Policy Institute so we know who you are essentially. Uh, Yes, we are, the Gender Equity Policy Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on research and education on gender. And our goal and our mission is to make progress on women's equality and gender equity for all. And the way we do that is by examining all those policies and practices that we don't think of as women's issues. There's a lot of great work in um, California and the country being done on things like childcare and paid family leave and equal pay. And we're very optimistic that with kind of our new kind of democratic renaissance and that's democratic with a small d uh, and the Biden administration's commitment to equity, um, gender equity to racial equity that we are going to make significant progress on what we think of as the classic women's issues. But our angle on this subject is that, well, 
the U.S. is way behind other nations on gender equality. And what is done in other countries that isn't done in the United States is to take all the policies that we don't think about as gender, right? You think probably 90, 95% of government goes on under the assumption that what they do is neutral. It doesn't have different effects on women and men or people of different races. And we're starting to question that. So what we do, our focus is to using data, using empirical evidence, doing literature reviews to figure out what impacts particular policies or business practices have on women and men differently. Um, And we always do race and ethnicity and other kinds of differences. We do those analyses whenever we do reports. Uh, So we believe that if we call out the way that our defaults are not neutral, but they have different impacts, that we can make a lot of progress on gender equality and gender equity. So that's really interesting. It makes me bring up my refrain on both my radio programs is, do you take on and frame and call out where zero sum interferes with making progress in equity? So absolutely not. Um, I think, you know, oftentimes people get confused between equality and equity and what that means. And equity really is about giving everyone the tools um, to potentially have the same outcomes. And so when we're talking about policies and how they impact men and women and non-binary people differently, um, just because, for example, one gender is going to benefit more than the other, if we lift the other gender up, we don't believe that um, one side will then lose something that they already have. Um, I think it really is creating opportunity and fairness for everyone. So as you're keeping tabs on the record across the country, today's time together here on Digging Up, we're mainly focusing on California and the extent to which this focus has impacts on trends around the country. So let's have you break down the ambitious funding package in California's resilience fund proposals. This is a proposal, but it's advanced a great deal now along the way. So I'm not sure if we're having a chance we can sort of redirect this proposal into a wholly different kind of appropriation. But can you talk about how the state's institutions, including the governor's office, other statewide elected officials, the state legislators, all arrived at this proposal, which has, it was deferred from being a statewide bond. It's now a legislative proposal and talk about the sources, where these funds are coming from. Okay, so let me take that on. So basically what we did was analyze how the state of California would budget and spend on what's known as climate resilience. So to back up a moment, so there's two big areas of climate work that we have to address. There is mitigation, which is reducing our carbon impacts. And California is absolutely a leader on this with the cap and trade proposal. But climate change is already here. We're already experiencing it. As we know with this week, these weeks of extreme heat, the wildfires already started flooding already in Orange County. So 
there is another area which is the state's going to have to pay a lot of attention on, and that's adaptation to climate change or what's really being called climate resilience. So let me back up a little bit. We're reaching the end of the budget negotiations in California, but at the very beginning near the of end. the year, very near the end, at the beginning of the year, the history is we've basically gone from real frightening austerity in January to a historic record surplus here. And on the climate funding, what happened is early in the session in both houses, two bonds were proposed that were presented as climate resilience bonds. And they were looking to be put on the ballot in 2022. And each of them in the assembly and the Senate had about 60 to 70 particular line items about what we would do for climate resilience. Um, the amount that we've ended up with in the climate resilience budget probably will stand is $3.7 billion for climate resilience over three years, $1 billion for wildfire, $3 billion to address the drought, all of these three-year budgets. In the course of the negotiations, once it became clear that there would be a lot of money available, the legislature took what they had in the bond measures and use that as their negotiating position with the governor's office. And the problem with what was already in discussion in the legislature is that it was radically unbalanced as to how it would be distributed across the state regionally, what areas of climate impacts would be addressed. And the result of these regional imbalances was a really, really dramatic shortchanging of the majority of California's women and Nancy, California's people of color. Nancy, before you talk about the result, what got that start, that huge bias started? Uh, well, let me start with the nice part of it and move <laughs> to some of the more sausage making part of it. Okay, that's um, why I was hoping we get to that sausage, yes. Yes. I don't think it, there was nothing intentional about this favoring um, white people and male people. It was the result of following kind of the defaults of what seemed to matter most to people. The kind of infrastructure so, and all. Yeah, so it's the big, we know all this debate about oh, what's really infrastructure. It's the big construction projects. And it also was addressing kind of the most dramatic and obvious impacts of climate change, which are the wildfires and the sea level rise. Now back to the sausage making part of it. So the big part that's missing from this is the climate impacts on urban areas and dense urban areas particularly, and the impacts of extreme heat. And so in many ways, this measure, is real, the bonds were really conservation measures. And, you know, we need to, it's great that California conserves our natural resources. But the fact is that the conservation groups tend to have a, a rural bias, a nature bias, to not think very much about other biases like gender bias and racial bias. 
And by putting the money into largely preserving nature, it overlooked millions of millions of Californians who are most vulnerable to the impact of climate change. On the sausage making, you know, these groups have a lot of experience working in Sacramento. So they know which consultants to hire, they know how to craft bills, they know how to influence legislators, you know, in a total, I'm not saying in any corrupt way, but they know how to work the system's levers. And people who are more disadvantaged, people who are more vulnerable, people who are more marginalized from the centers of power don't have those same advantages in writing legislation. Nancy, so, can I also suggest what's in play here too is that those with the levers, they're pulling specific levers. That's that kind of public choice theory, is it not? And the ones that are underrepresented, they're, pull, they're trying to work on a lot of different angles. So the ones that are working on one charge have a definite advantage in having influence versus those that are struggling with multiple charges. That's, I mean, that's a public choice theory. I think it's so elegant to explain how power bears, how people exert power when they have a sole function versus people who have multiple functions. I think that's a really interesting way of, of looking at it. And particularly in this moment where, right, so many of the people out of power are struggling with the disparate impacts of COVID, it was only exacerbated in this particular session of the legislature, I think. Okay. So back as you're explaining. And let me just, yeah, let me yes. just say where we are now, because I think that's important. There's still a lot of opportunity to make this better. And from what we've heard, the governor's office actually was leaning toward, you know, the better balance funding. And the way we look at it is our role is to educate and to dig into data that other people aren't necessarily digging into to lift up these imbalances that they might not have noticed because of, you know, they're busy, they have lots of other issues that they're dealing with. And so we do think that there's room for people who are not happy with how it was going before to know what is going on and to have some influence over how the ultimate decisions are made on this funding. So that's one of my final takeaway questions is what listeners can do. But in, since you were saying that there are ways to make it better, if not now, if by the close, I'd like for you to give specific assignments to listeners so that they, they can. But I am a bit pessimistic about how to exert the power when we, well, I'm just gonna use a small sort of scenario here in terms of the equity question and infrastructure where it's very clear the governor wants to see a desalination plant, we all call it Poseidon down here and maybe Mona's been getting that, Mona, are you following that at all? Yes, a little bit. Okay, so the Poseidon is a classic example of how the momentum behind a retro idea. It's about a 30 year old technology that the governor is adamantly supporting. And 
if approved by the final authorities, it's still under review now by, it went from the Water Quality Control Board in Santa Ana district here, and it's going to be reviewed by the California Coastal Commission at some point by the middle or late fall. But the governor wants that project. And that the equity issue is the ratepayers immediate to that water distributor are a very low income uh, minority neighborhood. The ratepayers throughout though, the Orange County are also going to be on the hook for what will be a very expensive and not a climate resilient proposition. So I, I'm hoping that your optimism about the larger $5.7 billion kind of commitment that the governor is reviewing that the Poseidon case study uh, demonstrates a bit of a, a shadow over this process to make the resilience fund proposals better with the governor. So maybe Mona, what she knows about Poseidon and what she knows about your intervening in the testimony you're giving the, the governor's office and the sponsors to the Senate and House bills, how influence can be exerted with the governor's office? Well, you know, one of the the key things is, you know, the phrase, all politics is local. So we do have a lot of great local community-based organizations and advocacy organizations, but a lot of the funding that does come to Orange County is influenced by, you know, who we have representing us, um, not only our county board of supervisors, but the individuals in the Senate and the assembly. And so one of the things that I would say is in addition to raising awareness, becoming educated and informed is also uh, voting in local elections. I think a lot of people tend to focus a lot on the federal elections um, and don't realize um, an issue like climate change and climate resilience. Really, most of that work gets done on the ground um, within your local community and municipality. And so it's really important to stay engaged on the local level. So on my programs, I talk about the importance of down ticket participation in the elections. So I'm glad Mona brings that point. And uh, in Orange County, we have, I think we have a very small window and I'm not sure that our one vote on the County Board of Supervisors is going to be uh, sustained in that she'll be reelected that is going to not only put light on the, how the board deliberates, but uh, actually vote for the longer picture here, in the, which is what the Institute is looking at in equity as the, the, the broader view. Because I, I see these proposals, they're really, there's such huge blind spots on this. They're sort of retro, retroactive versus a, a California forward looking kind of investment. I mean, it's a huge blind spot in there. Absolutely. And if you look at the demographics of Orange County. Every year, Chapman does a Orange County annual survey that you're probably familiar with. And in 2021, almost 80% um, said that the threat of climate change was serious. Um, and 70% did attribute that to human activities. Um, and that's not necessarily reflective of the representation that we have and how they approach climate change. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Nancy Cohen, president of the Gender Equity Policy Institute. Mona Shaw is vice president of external affairs at the Institute with their new report out, 
Failing the Climate Justice Test, an analysis of California's projected climate resilience funding and its effect on Californians by race and gender. So, well, you've talked about the values and uh, like the climate outcomes that equity is, is taking consideration. Is this proposal as it's written now, as the sausage is being uh, put in the casing, <laughs> is this proposal an ever expansion of the momentum to some unproductive trends towards solving these mounting challenges and the Institute's role in keeping that out front? So let's talk about some of our specific findings on this. Um, yes, and then please get do. Into how we ended up in the situation. So basically, we analyzed a proposal that was, you know, in the billions of dollars. And what we With the found- The B, I'm making sure everybody hears the B part. The B, yes. the billions, billions and billions, uh, uh, real money. And we analyzed how this money would be distributed across the different regions of California. In looking at what's the greater Los Angeles region under- California's climate region analysis, that includes Los Angeles, Orange, Ventura counties, and the urbanized adjacent areas of Riverside and San Bernardino. So I just want our listeners to understand what this part of California looks like. We have 45% of the state's population. Seven of 10 people who live here are not white. The absolute majority of Black Californians and Latino Californians live in this region. And the region is also majority women at a statistically significant level. Um, I thought that was, was so interesting when you sent me the summary in preparation for this interview. That's, did that yeah. surprise you? Did you all, is, is that widely known? Uh, I don't think so. It's, no. um, we, we ran some statistical tests on this to see because Typically, gender differences are not statistically significant, right? They hover around right. 50%. So what we discovered, so this region, right, um, where we all live and make our home, is if you compare what we would get per capita to what some of the northern regions, which are the whitest and most male regions, at a statistically significant level. So, for example, the North Coast region would get 13 times per capita what the LA region does. The Sierra Nevada's region would get six times per capita what the LA region does. The Central Coast and Inland Deserts would get five times what we do. And there's only one other region that is shortchanged in these proposals, and that's the Sacramento Valley region. And guess what? It is the most female region of the state and also at a statistically significant level. So basically the two regions that are most female, have majority women, get shortchanged while every other region either gets parity or gets an inordinately disproportionate amount of the funding. So the question is, how did this happen? Was there a bias against women? No, this happened by where they determined to focus the investments. So the, the investments are focused really on three areas, wildfires, sea level rise, and water quality. And I will say that the water issues are, the water funding is quite good in these existing proposals because they do 
um, they will benefit the Latino dominated Central Valleys where people have least access to good quality drinking water. So basically by ignoring the number one public health impact of climate change, which is extreme heat, they ended up throwing a lot of money at things that need funding, right? We need to prevent wildfires. We need to clear brush. We need to rebuild our water infrastructure. We need to deal with sea level rise. But as we're seeing throughout the country and particularly in the Northwest this week, extreme heat is our most immediate threat. This week, I read the headlines, death spike in Northwest. Right, according to the California Climate Change Assessment, excess deaths from extreme heat from climate change in California are projected to be up to 11,000 excess deaths per year. Wow. And the current proposals have almost nothing to address extreme heat, and particularly extreme heat in the urban areas where people have the greatest impacts and are also most vulnerable and have the least resources to um, manage it. 11,000, I'm letting that sink in. So this is what it looks like as the the climate crisis expands, 11,000 excess deaths. And that's not including excess deaths from other crises that are, we can anticipate. So this is is quite the number. So Mona, something to add to that. Yeah, absolutely. I am going to talk a little bit more specific to the challenges that um, residents living in Orange County face. I'm raising my family here, so I'm acutely aware of that. And, you know, again, on the surface, if someone were to look at the proposal, they would say, okay, they're making investments, for example, in wildfire prevention. Um, As many of the listeners are probably aware, in Orange County, we had significant wildfires last season. I was personally evacuated because of the Silverado fire, and there were several others, and so this is top of mind. They may not be aware, for example, that a lot of the wildfire funding is going to densely forested areas. And so a city like Irvine, for example, where a lot of the residents were evacuated, um, wouldn't necessarily be a beneficiary for that funding. You know, Orange County also because of all of our coastal areas, um, there's been a lot of flooding and swells. Just last week, there was flooding in Dana Point. I, um, again, remember personally last year, July 4th weekend, the Balboa Pier and Island area also had a lot of flooding. So these are all very real issues that Orange County is facing. And even if the proposal seems like it may address those issues, that's not necessarily the case for some of the things that we're dealing with. Um, And again, when Nancy mentioned this issue of heat, um, and there's a specific term people may be familiar with called urban heat islands, which are concentrated areas Um, And here in Orange County, Anaheim Hills, Anaheim, Santa Ana um, have these dense populations. They tend to be on average warmer than um, some of the more coastal areas. And their residents are in fact feeling uh, this impact quite a bit. There was a study um, done by an institute in Notre Dame Um, that actually looked at cities of similar size and evaluated their climate change readiness. Um, And it's no surprise that when they looked at Santa Ana and other cities who were very comparable in size across the country, Santa Ana was considered high risk and low readiness. 
And they looked at things like the exposure, the adaptive capacity and sensitivity um, that these places have. And they looked at buildings that have been built before 1979, uh, the number of people in that city who work outdoors, um, the households receiving public assistance, um, how much of their income do they spend on rent, the population that is 65 years and older because we know that heat affects um, younger and older individuals much more. Um, and so there are a whole host of factors um, and that again is right in our county. Um, and so I think it's really important um, when you're looking at statewide legislation to see how it affects you in your own backyard. So does the Institute then look at and advise and influence the proposals afoot here that infrastructure for equity, the sake of equity would be looking at the lack of open, of green space in those dense urban areas like in Orange County that Mona's talking about. The infrastructure could provide lungs, vegetation in those urban areas for, to provide for some kind of climate resilience. That's infrastructure, right? So yes, so um, urban greening, urban tree canopies are one of the measures, one of the mitigations to help make cities more adaptive and resilient to climate change. Um, and there is some funding in there for it, it's just not sufficient. But there's also a lot of interesting technology that's already in use that would have a huge, huge difference for people. It's repaving the streets with cool surfaces. It's cool roofs. California does have building codes now that require a cool roofing material. And as we've seen recently, building codes are essential to keeping people safe. That's what we, you know, that's one of the lessons out of um, that horrific collapse of in the condo tower in Miami. So I think, you know, our role, you know, we, we are optimistic in the way that if we do an analysis and put the information out there that other people aren't doing and aren't thinking about it is, you know, making the hint invisible, exposing things that people don't think of, taking what seems to be natural and showing like, no, this has a history to it. There's a reason that we only think of infrastructure as building bridges rather than building childcare systems. We do think, you know, our role is to educate and inform and do the research where we are a bunch of nerds and wonks in our organization. And um, we are putting it out there for advocates to get the information um, and use as they may to, you know, propose new policies, to, you know, make visits to their legislators. But our role is, we think there's a lo lot of different things people can do. There's a good division of labor in making a democracy work and ours is to do this research and analysis and put it out there. And so do you have sort of community organization targets that you're looping back in with as you're continuing to develop more findings as you're all, as you said, you're geeking out uh, research nerds there. Are, do you have a, a lovely long roster that you keep tapping in? I, I'm thinking like, for instance, the Communities for a Better Environment and they're statewide. You, uh, are they an example of community organizations that you're contributing this tremendous analysis to? Right, so we, we did start in January. 
So um, we are new and developing, but I've worked in labor advocacy, immigration policy, gender policy, and so know a lot of um, the groups in yes. Southern California. Mona's expertise is in health. So yes, that is something, you know, we, we reach out to other experts when we're doing reports to get their insight and to help them inform what we do to uh, make the reports better. And yes, as we grow, absolutely, we will communicate and network and partner with community organizations on the policies that they want to see examined. There's the fire drill Fridays too. I, I think you'd get a tremendous a profile. Jane Fonda give you one, one fire drill Friday to cover your work. Great. Connect us. I mean, no, you, I mean, you've seen them though. I mean, she just, yeah. I'm so impressed by how one A-lister shows such reverence appropriate reverence and sort of tease up the, the local communities. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable thing. I saw it at San Pedro before the pandemic took place with those the Communities for Better Environment and other organizations, communities that are affected by adjacent re, uh, oil refineries there in the Wilmington neighborhoods and, and other places around the state. But that's, she showed up and she was very, very reverent. So, well, we'll figure that out, get you all together, get everybody on each other's radars and clipboards <laughs> and speed dials. So let's talk, I wanna, I wanna bring up a few areas that I think that uh, talk to your recommendations. And I want you to, you're talking about advancing, you know, the regional race and gender equity in California's climate. So you, first you talked about the cooling solutions in the communities. I, I wanna bring up, there is, Throughout water management boards and the big distributor of them all, the Metropolitan Water District, and I've been able to interview water district or MET employees who sounded the alarm with the work environment. And you're trying, you're, one of your goals is to incentivize, I'm liberally quoting you here, incentivizing hiring women by funding programs that recruit and retain women in non-traditional careers and providing incentives to contractors and employers for hiring women. So I would think your first stop would be Metropolitan Water District employees. They can barely keep women in the trades in there. And there was a beginning last October, there were fact-finding interviews and they're continuing to this hour and they'll go on into deep into the end of the summer where the trades women were calling foul on the toxic work culture. So you're, you maybe aren't involved with work culture, but you do want to incentivize hiring these tradeswomen because there are, there's rare as hen's teeth there. And I want to know what, if that particular development is on your radar. So as a Gender Equity Policy Institute, of course, we're looking at all different policies across the board and certainly workplace, job creation, workplace environment is one of them. Um, one of the things we point out in our report is that not a single dollar of climate resilience, quote unquote, infrastructure was allocated to Cal OSHA, um, which oversees workplace conditions and the workplace environment. And certainly they have leverage, but also to public health. Um, and 
of course, we want to incentivize women going into careers where there's not traditionally a lot of women. But we also, again, want to make that link between climate resilience and the impact that it has on health and the importance of a public health infrastructure. Again, COVID showed us um, more than anything how weak our infrastructure really is. And that is an area, for example, where there's a little bit more gender balance in terms of men and women being employed. And you talk about um, public health workers and community workers. Um, And so it's both sides. It's getting women into different types of professions that they may not be aware of, making those workplaces um, more comfortable and more accommodating, but also looking at other places where there are already um, a significant number of women and continuing to invest in those as there is that very strong and direct correlation to the climate change that we see occurring. And they, they and bring in norm. Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry, Nancy. Uh, yes, let me add. Um, Mona's absolutely right about that. What I would add is we are in this moment of an absolute historic, unprecedented surplus of budget funds. And Perhaps that money can form as a very powerful incentive in these more traditional jobs and occupations for contractors, employers, and the trades themselves to clean up their act. Because what you talk about at Metropolitan Water District, the environment in the trade is historically what is keeping women out and driving women out. But it seems like the money that's at stake here could potentially be a very powerful lever for um, performance improvement there. And I think as we're looking at this big infrastructure project in California and the big federal infrastructure projects, this may be the way to really catalyze change in these areas. Yes, and I, I, I know I'm thinking out loud here and a little out of, the, uh, out of the box here, but we know that the governor's wife is a documentary film producer. You're giving her like six documentaries she could be making right now. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that statistics work very well in documentary films, but she would be the one to judge on that. Right, right, right. But I mean, the, the tradeswomen, the, mach- the machine operators for the Met, the, the kind of stories and the, the LA Times has done an amazing job of covering those personal profiles. And, uh, and you know, she's in very involved, she had been involved before she was in the governor's office on, on equity issues and, and public health. So I, I just, I, it feels like that is a lever and that you could appeal to her to see that, see uh, maybe not six, but maybe one or two kinds of documentary films that dramatize that how uh, women and work, women in public health are shortchanged, as, starting with the Metropolitan Market District. I don't think it's that big of a reach. I think it, I would think it would make a very compelling film that she'd be ready, that she would be motivated to do. So it's, a, I mean, she's producing her husband's press conferences, right? So she's got that muscle tone very well. Well, hopefully she reads our report. <laughs> Yes, well, that's exactly, exactly. Well, I just want to remind those listeners who have just joined us, my guests are Nancy Cohen, President of the Gender Equity Policy Institute, and Mona Shaw, Vice President of External Affairs 
at the Institute with their new report out, Failing the Climate Justice Test, an analysis of California's projected climate resilience funding and its effect on Californians by race, region, and gender. End of quote of that title. So I, I had, there's another goal to incentivize hiring, investing in public health workforce and infrastructure to protect all Californians and stimulate job creation in a more gender balanced sector. And so I'm familiar, this is a very sort of a granular kind of a case study here. I'm familiar with an entrepreneur. She's engineered a terrific technology and she's fabricated. It's a closed loop device to purify water. It's very resilient. It's so disruptive though, she cannot get the kind of adoption. And it, she's been out there. She puts herself out there. The closed loop solutions are what are, should be the mainstay of climate resilient infrastructure. So I don't know if there is a portion that gender equity is investigating is where women entrepreneurs are not getting inside those investment games to get the, to have more momentum toward adoption of the technology they're offering. Well, this is an issue that we're very interested in and we are working on kind of the business side of things as well and some of the projects we're developing. The lack of um, access to capital um, for women entrepreneurs is a huge, huge problem. And it's one of the things holding women's kind of economic progress up. So I do think um, maybe in a kind of separate um, way, you know, there's a lot of different funds in the state. Um, I do think they have, the state has shown um, some good policies on trying to think about women's economic empowerment. You know, there's the law requiring a certain number of women on all corporate boards. So I do think that that is going on on a separate track and is- And that's getting challenged. That the, the, the I know, women, I know. Yeah, I mean, there as it's moving up in the court system. So it's a little unnerving that that kind of equity is gonna maybe get rolled back, back to the to old ways of doing business. But I'm sorry, go ahead, Nancy. Right, the part about the business element is that it doesn't necessarily require government on it. There does seem to be a lot of momentum in the private sector to pay attention to their own um, gender equity issues. Uh, so I think there's, there's potentially encouraging developments there that are being led by women and also met more men and more companies are starting to understand the positive return on investment by having more diverse workforces and leaders in their company. And it's not diverse for the sake of diverse. I mean, it's, I mean, these are just good projects that really require full consideration so that we do have a resilient system. We have a resilient sort of array of infrastructure. Absolutely. It's getting both done. Exactly. So this momentum though concerns me is with the 5.7 billion with the B dollars in this proposal so how do you two see yourselves being able to redirect that momentum to 
these more, I'm going to call progressive with the small P, with the large P, a progressive kind of redirection with gender equity considered. How do you get ahead of this? Because it is such, there is such momentum now for these pretty retrograde solutions and proposals. Well, we've had good response to our report. So uh, we do feel that could you talk to that, some... Nancy? The, how people are responding? That's a great. That's well, a great. We have, we, have, we have legislators who have who have reached out to us. We have nonprofit advocacy organizations who have reached out to us, and they are kind of connected to the community of people really working on climate adaptation plans and really focused on California's most kind of marginalized, disadvantaged, and vulnerable populations. So. We feel that getting this information out and getting doing an analysis in a new way, putting data together in a way that nobody has done before is really, you know, it shined a light on it. And that we hope that advocates can use it for getting better policies and that the legislators who do want better policies have a tool at their disposal to say, look, we're not saying we shouldn't fund wildfire prevention in the Sierra Nevadas, but we also need to pull the surfaces of the playgrounds in urban schools because, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people that we need to protect in California cities. And can maybe Mona talk to the local legislators that have been responding to the data that Gender Equity Policy Institute has been bringing to the legislative process. Like I'm, I'm thinking of our Senator David Min, our Representative Cadi Petrie Norris, them or others in Orange County that have been responding in ways that can give us some hope that there is a, there's some redirection in the policy defaults right now. So we have not received any specific feedback from either of those two elected officials. Um, as Nancy has said, we are a pretty new and young organization. And what we hope to do with this report and all of our reports in the future is be able to have the resources and the time to introduce ourselves to legislators, to let them know who we are, what we do, to make sure that our reports are widely available and widely read. So I would definitely say that's a work in progress. Um, and you know, we welcome you, Claudia, to um, disseminate our information to people that you know who you feel would be interested and compelled to read it. Well, I'm I'm keeping a, I'm running a tab right now. Who gets to get on your uh, on your list or you on their list for sure? Because it's is such a it's such a large charge and a, a noble charge to to serve all of us. Um, so. Is there a shorthand for the $5.7 billion proposals? Previously from the Assembly Bill 1500 and Senate Bill 45, but is there a shorthand we can use when we're talking about addressing these proposals? Yes, yes. so um, in the budget that looks like it's right, going to be decided any minute, any um, <laughs> they have allocated $3.7 billion for climate resilience. And the projects that we feel were overlooked would fall under that budget area. Now, the way the California budget works is when they can't figure out exactly the line item for everything in the budget, 
they start writing bills over the summer. So basically, you know, they could go back to scratch and figure out what would be the best way to use it. These bills that aren't fairly crafted could continue to be the blueprint. Um, we really don't know yet. I would also say that there's the wildfire money. It's really critical for the Los Angeles region, Los Angeles, Ventura, Orange County, all of us who live in more of the Chaparral areas to make the case that we can't just be thinking about um, the old growth forests, that they're very distinctive ways in which fire happens in our areas and that that needs to get equal funding with the forest work that is dominated in these um, past proposals. Well, so I'm wondering if the Institute is concerned with not so much just the infrastructure solution, but the local governance of the kind of land use designations so that it lowers the tab on some of these resilience issues that we're talking about. Absolutely, absolutely. So that is a big, um, the land use decisions are kind of a critical component in climate adaptation planning. And as Mona said earlier, it's typically done at the local level. And there's a lot of evidence that a good part of Orange County is way behind other areas of the region, Los Angeles, for example, in stepping up to do this planning. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath, though, that the leadership is up to it. It's, it's as retro as it is anywhere in Southern California in the Orange County local government scene. I, so I'd uh, like to add, Claudia, um, yes. you know, a lot of municipalities across the state are creating climate sustainability and resilience plans. And some of those include mitigation, some of those include adaptation, and certainly land use would be one of the things um, that they look at. And if you look at Orange County, we have 34 municipalities and only nine out of our 34. So that's about, you know, slightly over 25% um, have some sort of plan in place. And so um, there's certainly pockets of Orange County that are doing excellent work and taking those things into consideration. Um, Laguna Woods is one municipality um, that tends to be highlighted because they have a lot that they've thought about in terms of, you know, it has a very high elderly population. Um, and so they have put in ways to emphasize social cohesion, for example, creating a centralized communication system, doing energy retrofits. Um, we haven't really even touched upon the lack of um, good public transportation. And so, you know, one of the things that we would like to see is for more of these municipalities to actually come up with these plans. And again, um, land use is very much a, a local subject, a local decision and, and getting local individuals, community-based organizations and elected officials involved um, and bringing together all the different sectors. You know, you had mentioned water management. There's, of course, waste management. There's fire. There's so many different areas of yes. local government that really need to meet and sit down together to talk about these issues and figure out a best strategy forward. And unfortunately we don't have that in Orange County. Um, and Nancy can speak a little bit more to uh, these climate collaboratives as they're known. Hold it one moment before Nancy talks about those collaboratives. So the 
nine out of 34 municipalities, and, and I'm not sure everybody understands that county government is a municipal government. So do I understand correctly, Mona, that Orange County Board of Supervisors are not one of those nine of the 34 that are making those plans? Correct. They're out of, of compliance with that. Okay, so I just That's wanted right. to make that final point. So Nancy was going to talk about, tack on yeah, to that. So so climate collaboratives are, have become very common around the state. And what they are is, you know, there are these groups of, you know, staff and leadership of local agencies of all types. Many of them have um, nonprofit community organizations sitting on the collaboratives also. And they serve two purposes. One, it's where local officials um, learn about the most current climate science and what the actual impacts on their areas are going to be. And even more important, it's where they learn where the funding opportunities are. So basically, Orange County is leaving a lot of money on the table because it hasn't created the local government systems to know what the opportunities are, know where the grants are, and write proposals that can win those grants. So as Mona mentioned before, with 80% of the county really caring about it and wanting action, their officials are not being responsive to their communities in a way that's not just ignoring it, but you know, leaving resources that are available to it behind because they don't wanna be bothered with adapting to and preparing for climate change. Well, that says it all. You, you captured it, ex the whole essence of that leadership model here. And so I, just for, for listeners who are residents of Orange County, Statewide institutions get what's going on around us locally. So I, Nancy, that was so, that was such a powerful encapsulation of that. And I, I have so many other questions, but I know there are so many demands on your institute. I can't take more time, but I do want an opportunity to revisit the outcome with you, the outcome of this legislative session and any kind of subsequent state bonds or other instruments that we all need to examine for people to uh, see whether or not we're making any progress with climate resilience and gender equity in our state and local institutions. Can we do that? We would be happy to. If people want to read the report, our website is thegepi.org. That's T-H-E-G-E-P-I.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at thegepi. Thank you so much. My guests were Nancy Cohen, president of Gender Equity Policy Institute, and Mona Shaw, vice president of external affairs at the Institute. And again, I'll remind listeners, you can pull it up from their website, their latest report, Failing the Climate Justice Test, an analysis of California's projected climate resilience funding and its effect on Californians by race, region, and gender. Thanks again, ladies. Thank you for having us, Claudia. And next week, I'll have on Ion Sancho, former supervisor of elections of Leon County in the state of Florida, who over his entire career and continues as a retired man, has a lot of receipts on running elections. He'll have a lot to say about where we are in this republic with the latest judicial rulings and the state legislative voting law rollouts. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone.